everybody. Hello. Welcome to Desert Cyrus. Yeah. <laughs> nice to be talking to you all again. And I'm Chelsea. I am Janelle. <laughs> In case you can't tell our voices apart, I guess. I don't yeah. know how different our voices are. That would be interesting to know. I know. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure our family and friends can tell us apart, but... Hopefully more than that is listening to us at this point. <laughs> we'll see what happens. All right, but welcome and let's get ready for some more interesting, crazy, who knows what stories because we don't tell each other what we're researching. No, and mine is like always completely different. So. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's get into it. Yay. All right, so this is Janelle with my fun history story of the week. Um, so this time we're deviating from all the ghosts and ghoulies that I've been talking about a bit. Okay. And we're going to talk a bit about miracles. Oh, like <laughs> Christian miracles or just miracles so, in general? So not miracles in general. Like we're going to be traveling uh, to northern New Mexico Okay. We're going to be going to Santuario de Chimayo. Never heard of it. <gasps> Never. I know Never I've told ever. you about it, but you're, you're going to probably realize what I'm talking about once oh, I go okay. into it. But okay. um, hopefully some of this is new, though. <laughs> yes. Um, so, yeah. So we're going to go into the history of the place. And then there's a fun little bit about miracles in there. Okay. And then we're going to talk about some interesting groups of, well, an uninteresting group of people. One? <laughs> well, one, like one interesting oh. group of people. I thought you said they're uninteresting. Oh, but we're going to yeah. talk about them. No, un as in A N. <laughs> I'm just having issues pronouncing. Oh, except. An? Yeah. Okay. That. <laughs> that makes more sense. Okay. Go. We're off to a great start here. <laughs> <Sorry>. Let's go. <laughs> no, it's my issue for pronouncing. <laughs> All right, so first off, we're going to talk about um, the history of Santuario de Chimayo, which is also known in English, not many people call it this, but it is the Chimayo Sanctuary. Okay. Uh, Chimayo is a small town in northern New Mexico, about 30 minutes north of Santa Fe. Uh, the Santuario is in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains of Chimayo. Um, so, Santuario de Chimayo is a national historic landmark, Spanish colonial Catholic church that was built between 1813 and 1816, to which over 300,000 pilgrims or visitors go each year, making it the most visited Catholic pilgrimage site in North America, and it's also known as the, the Lourdes of America, because I can't remember what country it is in now, but there's another country where Lourdes is a place where a ton of pilgrims go. Oh, okay. So they compare it to that because so many people go there now. Here. Got it. Um, so 30 to 50,000 of the pilgrims that go there go during Holy Week or and for Good Friday. Okay. So for those who may not know, um, Good Friday is the day that commemorates the Passion of the Christ, which is right before, it's the Friday before Easter. And the Passion is the story of Jesus Christ's arrest, trial, suffering, and execution on the cross. Um, so I could go more into that, and maybe we will <laughs> later. Okay. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, so basically, like, as Christians, we believe that Jesus is, like, 
the son of God, but also part of God who came down to earth as a human and he lived a perfect life. And then he died on the cross for our sins. Mm-hmm. And then he came back to life. Yes. And then he ascended into heaven. Yes. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> thank you, Jesus. <laughs> um, so anyway, so Good Friday cel- like commemorates or, you know, gives respect to his death. And then Easter celebrates when he comes back to life. Yes. Um, and like I said, I could go way more into that if anybody's interested. But I did, and I will have a link in the notes on a BBC article that talks all about the passion and his coming back to life and a lot of what we believe, which it goes into super detailed. Um, but anyways, so that's the big day that a lot of people go there and some visitors also come from all over the world and some even with different beliefs come. Oh, all to New Mexico? To New Mexico. I didn't know about that. Yeah. Um, And the church itself is uh, decorated with 19th century Hispanic religious folk art, including santos, which is like, I think it's saints. I think so, too. um, And religious frescoes. But I do want to give some respect, because before the santuario was built, the Pueblo Native Americans, also known as Puebloans, did inhabit the area since the 12th century, long before the Spanish conquistadors and settlers came. Okay. So they were there, and there's some really interesting stuff that I found out about them being there. <laughs> so, sorry, kind of <laughs> trying to get myself back in order. Um, my brain's just dying. <laughs> I, yeah. I'm just here for the ride. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so when the Spanish conquistadors and settlers came um, up into New Mexico... Uh, they did cause a lot of friction, especially the Catholic Church, because they were with them. A lot of friction with the Puebloans because they insisted on trying to convert them to Christianity. Always. And this led to the 1680 Pueblo Revolt and a temporary victory for the Puebloans in driving out the Spanish invaders. I think I mentioned that in a previous episode. I can't remember which one that was, but... I have mentioned it before, and one day I want to go more in-depth into the, the Pueblo Revolt. Okay, yeah. Um, but yeah, so the Spanish came and invaded. They tried to force the Puebloans into Catholicism, and the Puebloans weren't really cool about that, so mm-hmm. they actually successfully drove out the Spanish for a good chunk of time. Which is crazy, because that's, like, so rare to happen in history oh, yeah. of Amer- the Americas. Yes. That's pretty awesome though yeah totally and um but anyways so the spanish were there for a bit um but they did kick them out uh before the spanish had named it the t i think they're called tiwa please forgive me if that's not the right pronunciation but it is a branch of the puebloan people (laughs) thank you for your forgiveness (laughs) um but their name for chimayo is actually very similar, so I'm guessing this is where the Spanish got it, where it's, uh, it looks like it's, like, C-Mayo, it's like T-S-I-M-A-Y-O-H. Mm, I have no clue. Yeah, <laughs> so they called it that, the Tiwa called it that after one of four sacred hills above the valley, which is directly behind where Santuario de Chimayo is now. Okay. And they believed that they shared the land with supernatural beings, 
Uh, they thought that there was healing spirits found in the hot springs that were in the area, but mm-hmm. at one point those hot springs dried up. Oh. But they also believed that the earth that was left behind also had healing properties. Okay. Uh, so what's interesting is that means the Native Americans of this area used the land for healing long before the Spanish occupation and later people came to use it for the same purpose. Okay. So, in 1693, uh, 13 years after the revolt, the Spanish reconquered New Mexico, and that allowed Spanish and Mexican settlers to flow back into the area. So this included a repopulation of the village of El Potrero, and please forgive me if I'm pronouncing things wrong. I'm trying really hard. I am Hispanic. <laughs> I was just going to say, like, all of your stories have all these, like, Spanish names, and mine are all just not that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to expose you people to <laughs> all this I feel like Hispanic you're doing a culture. Good job. Well, thank you. Um, so, anyways, like, I have some Spanish knowledge, and my family does have Spanish speakers, but I'm, I also don't use it a whole lot, so... We'll see yeah. how my pronunciations <laughs> go by. Um, but anyways, so El Potrero was repopulated, and by 1805, the Guatemalan image of Christ crucified, also known as Our Lord of Esquipulas, had become popular. So El Potrero was and is a village that is part of several settlements in the Santa Cruz Valley collectively called Chimayo. Because you'll hear me kind of use, like, alternatively, Chimayo and El Potrero, and it's because, like, Potrero was within Chimayo. Oh, okay. Got it. So, um, anyway, so talking about our Lord of es- Esquipulas, <laughs> um, devotion to this image originating in Guatemala, uh, a shrine where the earth or dirt was said to have healing power. The crucifix is different in that it makes sure to show Christ's suffering. Like, there's blood in the wounds. It's a little bit more gory. Yeah. Um, And the cross is green with some plants sprouting from it to signify the life that comes from Christ's crucifixion rather than death. Oh. Yeah, so it's... it's I don't think I've ever seen that before, actually. We'll have to... I I tried to get you to go to church once. Well, I'll have to get you to go sometime. (laughs) Well, go to church, guys. (laughs) And say when she goes to the, I'm not a heathen, I promise. No, no. <laughs> that church. I mean, that church specifically. Is just interesting because the, 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 we'll get into it, but there's a, there's a cru- crucifix like this in there. In Santuario the, de Chimayo. Okay, got it. Yeah. No, I go to a non denominational Christian church <laughs> that doesn't have a yeah, crucifix. Say, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so this image um, was spread around Mexico and New Mexico and New Mexico by Franciscan friars. Um, so anyway, so that's kind of some back in, background information to talk about the build, like building Santuario de Chimayo, and okay. why is it there? Why is it important? Well, the thing is, is there's multiple legends and theories as to why Santuario de Chimayo was built. Okay. So I'm going to share with you three different stories. <laughs> But they're a little different and a little fun. Okay. (laughs) Um, So the one that a lot of people go with, um, which is, you know, some people truly believe it. Some people see it more as a legend. Okay. Take it as you will. Mm -hmm. Like a metaphor. Yeah. (laughs) So anyways, on Good Friday in 1810, uh, Penitente 
which we'll get into what that is later. But a penitente brother, Don Bernardo Abeta, was praying and doing penance on a hill in the Chimayo El Potrero area. As he was praying, he saw a light coming from a hill near the Santa Cruz River. So he went to go see what this light was. And he found that the light was coming from the ground on the hill, which led Abeta to finding a carving of Jesus, which was a six-foot-tall cross with Our Lord of Esquipulas on it. He and other penitentes and townspeople dug up the crucifix and took it to Friar Sebastian Alvarez, pastor at Holy Cross Parish in the town of Santa Cruz de la Cañada. The next morning, the crucifix was gone and was found back in its original spot. And this may or may not have repeated three times. Different versions. One Mm -hmm. version has it only going back once. One version says they were really stubborn and kept trying to bring it back and it wasn't having it. Um, You might get into this later, but does it say, like, the theory of how it even got there in the first place? Yeah, so we will get into those theories for sure. Actually, pretty soon here. (laughs) Next line. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So, anyways, so people involved felt that this was the crucifix's way of saying it wanted to stay in Chimayo, Mm -hmm. so they built a small chapel around it in that place. Another legend claims that Don Bernardo Abeta had a vision while plowing his fields that told him to dig beneath the plow where there was earth with healing powers. Okay. That one's just a really brief guy. It was on one website. I had never heard that one before, so I don't know where that one came from. But Somebody just said it. So yeah, they were like, I want to take the cross out of it, so let's just <laughs> say he was plowing and just had some fancy dirt. But anyway, so the more pop... Possibly the more accurate version of the story um, says that the first Spanish settlers in the Chimayo area came with a priest who brought the crucifix from Guatemala. And they say it came there from because it is the Our Lord Esquipulas, which is popular there. Yes. So the priest preached to the Native Americans in the surrounding pueblos and carried the large crucifix with him, like everywhere he went. The six foot? Yes. Oh. He must have been strong. (laughs) Right? (laughs) But when he died, he was buried with the crucifix at El Potrero. In 1810, the Santa Cruz River flooded and exposed the crucifix. Um, But did it expose his body? So, possibly. Oh, no. (laughs) Because in some versions of this theory, they say that um, it did expose the body as well as the crucifix. Oh, no. And people who had known him in life because this was still when there were still people around who had known him yeah and they exclaimed oh look the father from esquipulas which then some people say that that's what led to the crucifix and there wasn't like a marker for this supposed grave he was just buried there with a cross i guess not (laughs) oh we'll know where he's at i guess yeah (laughs) i don't know they they never say explain that yeah interesting but um But yeah, so it just like, yeah. So anyway, so they were like, oh, hey, cool. So there there may or may not have been a body with the cross at that point. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But there was definitely a cross that came out of the ground. (laughs) Okay, okay. (laughs) But so anyway, so on November 15th of 1813, uh, Bernardo Abeta wrote to the Bishop of Durango, Mexico, requesting permission to build a church to hold the crucifix and mass. 
And then on February 8th of 1814, Francisco Fernandez Valentino, Vicar General of the Diocese of Durango, Mexico, granted the needed faculties to build the church. So the main chapel was built around 1813-1814, but the current shrine was built in 1816 when they needed a larger building because so many people were coming to be healed. And I'll get more into that in a bit. Like, I'm going to explain... Because a lot of people go there for healing. Oh. Um, but just going about the building and the church itself and the grounds. So the church was privately owned um, by Bernardo Abeta's descendants until 1929 when it was bought from the, Chav- the then Chavez family mm-hmm. by the Spanish Colonial Art Society in Santa Fe. It was restored by architect John Gaumim before it was turned over to the Archdiocese of Santa Fe, which then it was assigned to Santa Cruz as a mission under the care of priests with the sons of the Holy Family. Um, nearby the church, within walking distance, is the Santo Niño de Atocha Chapel, which was built in 1857. It's a actually one of the it might be the, I, I got conflicting information about this. It may either be the primary pilgrimage site for Easter. Okay. Or it might be one of the primary pilgrimage sites. Because okay. it was like, like I said, the information I got was a bit wishy-washy. Okay. But it is a primary Easter pilgrimage destination, which was started by U.S. soldiers and sailors who prayed to Santo Niño during the Bataan Death March. And they started pilgriming, pilgrimaging to the chapel <laughs> as thanks for their survival and return, which then spread as a practice among many other people. Okay, just a quick question. Yeah. Um, A pilgrimage, like, I know it means you travel somewhere to go worship, but, like, is it a lot of the times, like, walking? Like, how do you pilgrim? So, most of the time, yes, it's walking there. Okay. Like, a lot of times people... Some people will go from wherever they are at and walk to the, the church. Way. Yeah. Okay. But there are also a lot of people who will, like, drive to Santa Fe and then walk. And how or, how far? You said it was an hour? It's like a half hour drive from Santa Fe. So it's like a... Good few hours walk. <laughs> I think okay. it's like an all-day endeavor for most okay. people. Interesting. Um, I mean, some people drive there and claim they're pilgrimaging, but I don't know if that counts. <laughs> Well, I'm just, like, picturing being pilgrimaging (laughs) in New Mexico. Like, I guess during Easter time it's not that hot yet. Or it's kind of cold, right? Yeah, because it's it's in late March, early April. So, yeah, so it would still be a little bit cooler. But they do still have issues with people getting heat stroke and everything. Okay. So oftentimes now that it's a huge deal... People will actually, like, volunteers will set up tables with water along the way. It's almost like a marathon kind of thing. <laughs> like, people will try to do they things to help. their nipples, too? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But, um, and we'll get into it a little bit later. Um, but what's interesting, too, is for this pilgrimage, I don't know if it happens for other places. Um, but I know for this one, sometimes people will even also carry a full-blown cross. Or some people will do it, like, barefoot. Some people will go, like, really crazy with it. Oh, my gosh. With all the goat heads out there? Yeah. No, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which may be more 
understandable once I get into it later. But okay. okay. I just anyways. had to clear yeah. that up. Yeah, no, no, for sure. Uh, so, yeah. So, anyways, so some people go to the Santo Nino de Atocha Chapel, which is nearby, but Santuario is definitely a destination, like the primary destination okay. for most people. Um, anyways, on the grounds, uh, they also have a few newer buildings. Like, I've noticed them being built in my time, because my family usually goes there at least once a year. Okay. Usually multiple times. Um, but so, like, within my lifetime, (laughs) they have built a Native American chapel on the grounds that does pay respects to the people who first inhabited the area. Interesting. Yeah. That's not, like, against the Catholic religion to have other religious chapels there? You know, I have no clue. And the thing is, is that I think it's still new enough that they didn't really have a whole lot of information about it on their website. Okay. It was just kind of like a page that was like, hey, we have this. Yeah, (laughs) which I get that they're trying to honor the people before, but with a chapel is interesting because it's like... I thought it was interesting that they called it a chapel, yeah, Yeah. because it even has an altar in there. And I was like, this is interesting. I know. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. Um, so, also, the most, the most new building that I know of, newest, there we go, that that word, (laughs) I promise I can speak English. She can. Um, (laughs) But now they have the El Rincón de Don Bernardo Abeta Welcome Center. So this is a free museum and welcome center that provides the history of El Santuario and the Catholic Church in northern New Mexico overall. It also has antique and contemporary Santero art and a mural of the discovery of the crucifix by Ron Rundo. Mm -hmm. It also has 14 bronze station of the cross statues by Gibbs Singleton, which, uh, again, for people who may not know, I know it's more popular in Catholicism where they have like 14 points of Jesus carrying the cross and being crucified because Jesus had to carry his cross to where he was crucified. Yeah. And there was, like, various events that happened as he was carrying it, mentioned in the Bible. And so, like, the Catholics like to um, have images of that, usually within the church. Oh, okay. Um, Like, you'll usually, if you go into a Catholic church, you'll see along the walls, like, these 14 pictures of, like, the story of Jesus taking his cross. Oh, okay. Um, So this, so in this welcome center, they have bronze statues of that. Okay. Um... So there is also a prayer tree where people can leave notes, which includes prayers, testimonies, you know, various what kind things of like tree that. Is it? Uh, it is. I think it's either metal or wood. It's just like I don't oh. know, it's not like a tree oh. tree. Oh. Yeah, yeah, I was picturing a tree. tree. It's not a living tree. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, okay, got it. Yeah. Um, but the one of the biggest things that draws so many people to this place mm-hmm. is El Posito which is a small well or pit that has what people believe is holy dirt in a small side room off of the altar. And what's fun is that it even has, like, this itty-bitty door, because if you go to any, like, older buildings, especially... I know for sure in New Mexico, I can't remember if it's really common in other places, but the doors are small because we are little people. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and especially back then. Yeah. They were even smaller. So, anyways, the door is very small. You usually, most people have to stoop to enter. I actually don't because I'm only five feet tall, but... She's itty-bitty, guys. <laughs> but, anyways, in this well or pit is, like, 
a bunch of dirt. Oh. And this is holy dirt, uh, also known as miracle dirt. Um, Can you, what do you do with it? Can you take any of we'll it? We'll get there. Oh, okay. Give me two Can seconds. You roll around in it? Because <laughs> I want to talk about, like, where the idea that this became holy dirt came from. So okay. but let's, let's backtrack a little bit. Okay. So we're going to go back to, you know, Bernardo Abeta, who found this stuff. Mm-hmm. So after he found the crucifix, um, he actually soon after became deathly ill. So there's two versions again, you know, because word of mouth stories, they change over time. So we got different versions going on. So after he became deathly ill, he either, he himself either saw an apparition of his patron saint in the air across the Asakia, which is a community ditch. To like irrigate land and stuff. Um, Yorona was down there. Yeah, we might talk about her another time. I really want to talk about <laughs> her. She's fun. Um, but anyway, so he saw this apparition, this vision of this patron saint, and the saint like motioned to him to come forward. So he used the last of his energy to go where the vision had appeared and fell on the ground, and the earth there healed him. Oh. So that's one version. Okay. Another version is that. Um, Doña Abeta, so his wife, mm-hmm. prayed for her husband under cottonwood trees bordering the Asequia, and she was just really worried that the priest from Santa Cruz wouldn't make it in time to give him his last rites. Mm, okay. Um, she wasn't even hopeful he was going to survive at this point. She was like, just let him live until he can get his last rites. Because yeah. I know some, I don't know if it's all Catholics, but I know some believe that if you don't get your last rites before you die, like, you might not make it to heaven terrifying yeah so anyways as she's praying she sees a vision of their patron saint who told her to take the dirt from the spot that she was on to her husband which then she took it gave it to him and it cured him okay so um let's see you're gonna hear my paper rustling because i am old school and have paper (laughs) (laughs) but anyway so news of the miracle spread and pilgrims started going to that spot to also use the dirt for healing and just as a side note, Dong Abeta, he eventually died in 1856, and he was actually buried in the chapel with special permission from the church. Oh, where in the chapel? Um, I know that there's some graves that are marked. I, wa- I want to go back and see if one of them is the marked graves uh, that I've yeah. seen. There's only a few. There's only a few people buried there. Okay. But... Like, is it in the ground, in the walls? Ground. In ground. the ground. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we we ain't fancy like the Europeans. (laughs) People all up everywhere. (laughs) Um, But anyways, so nowadays, kind of starting to get to your thing, your question, your thing. Yeah, it's my thing. (laughs) Um, So people now rub the dirt, which also is known as Tierra Bendita, which is sacred earth. Um, They rub it on physical ailments. Some will put it in a little bit in water and drink it. Oh. Um, and some people take it home. You can take it home. Oh, you can. Um, so some people take it home for various uses. This one's really interesting to me. I never had heard this before. But um, some of them will put it in the fireplace to calm storms or affect the weather somehow. Or also to, like, get safe travels for people to come home. Like, family to come okay. home. Um, some do believe that the the whole of dirt is miraculously replenished like Mm. it just the dirt just never goes away i was gonna say well i was gonna ask too because i know it's like a room that they have dirt but like 
does it have a floor underneath or is it just more dirt underneath? You know what I'm saying? So it's, um, so it is a very tiny little room. Yeah. Um, and it's literally like, there's a few pictures. I can't remember of what, because usually I'm focused on the whole when my family goes in. Um, cause my family does go there and we do go to the dirt. Um, and we, yeah. So anyways, so there's some pictures on the walls. I can't remember if it's of saints or past priests or what but there's pictures and in the middle of this small little square room like the the ground i can't remember if it's dirt or concrete but if it's dirt it's like really compacted okay and then there's the hole in the center and that hole like if i tried to go in and scoop dirt like almost my whole arm goes in there (laughs) oh okay um Hmm. My grandpa usually does it because he has longer arms. <laughs> he can yes. get to it easier. Because yes. <laughs> you and your stumpy arms. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, so I, I can't remember, like, now that I'm trying to think about it, because we haven't been there in, like, almost a year. Yeah. It's, we're due. Yes. <laughs> um, and I think it's one of those things because I grew up going there like all the time so yeah. it's something that I've just gotten used to it so you kind of don't think about the details anymore that's true <laughs> yeah. well because I was just wondering because like if they have this miracle dirt on top but then just like regular dirt underneath yeah so again you keep jumping right ahead of me <laughs> so um so real quick before we get into that okay um so some people do believe that the dirt is miraculously replenished because the hole doesn't get much deeper than my arm length. You know, that's like... No matter what, how many times people scoop yeah. it. Okay. So, yeah. So, from people who are visiting, that's what it seems like. And my arm is probably about, what, like, maybe two feet long? Maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, anyway, so many people do swear by the dirt's miraculous healings, um... Which includes, there's, and if you go to the Santuario de Chimeo's website, which again will be in the notes, uh, there are tons of testimonies of people sharing, like, Isn't how they like believe they were healed. a long line to wait to get the dirt? If you go during Holy Week, like Good Friday, yes. Oh, okay. But do you, you guys just normally we go? Don't, just we don't go during that time of year. Usually we go, like, through other, like, usually in the fall, actually. We usually oh, go okay. in the fall because they have a bunch of trees on the property that are very pretty. It's a very pretty place. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, we don't go when all the people are there because we're, we're a little antisocial. So. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, like, that sounds like something you would wait a long time in line for. Oh, yeah. Like, a especially yeah so during yeah, holy week, yeah during holy week yes okay. it is insane how packed that place is got it okay um but yeah so there are a bunch of testimonies online um but some people have said that it has healed their cancer their infertility any like mental health or emotional afflictions physical ailments Can I, like scoop some dirt to help me lose some weight Rub it on your tummy and let's see. <laughs> okay. And my bingo arms too. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so they claim that it causes all kinds of healing. But I will note though, the church does not endorse the claims and has not investigated any claims to see if the miracles are legitimate or not. Oh, uh, and it's not like considered a miracle necessarily unless it's recognized by the church, right? If you're Catholic. Okay. Yeah. Like, I mean, technically, yeah, if you're following, like, the very like strict, like, terms, yeah, you know, very strict yeah. Catholic 
okay. um, perspective, then yeah, it, it would have to be legitimized. Is there, they, have they explained why? Um, not specifically. They just kind of say, like, we don't really think the dirt. Then why do they have it in there? Because it makes money. That's true. <laughs> and you have to pay money? If you want to get the fancy containers in the gift shop to go get the dirt. <laughs> ah, it's all ca- capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> they got to keep the church running somehow, Chica. Yeah, I guess that's true. I guess that's true. Um, so, yeah. But, um, anyway. Okay, so, yeah. So, people claim that it heals a bunch, and but the church doesn't necessarily support that the dirt itself, like, causes miracles. And... There is some technicality into that that I might mention again later where they will say, like, you know, it's your faith in God. Like, and this is kind of like what my family kind of stands by is it's your faith in God that works through the dirt. Okay. You know? Yeah. It's not like the dirt itself is healing you. You know, some people do believe that. and We'll get into that a bit more later. Mm -hmm. Um, But for us and for, like, the church itself, it's like more emphasis on God doing yeah, the work. Yeah, kind of like when you do communion, like you're not really drinking God's blood and eating his flesh, but it's like, yeah, you your, what is it called? Symbolism. Uh, yeah, they, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, so there is that. But yeah, so anyway, so a lot of people swear they got healed, and th- so when you exit the room with El Posito, the, the little hole, um, there's another room that's like, they call it a side prayer room. And in that room, there are tons of pictures. They even set up another little like patio area where they put a lot of the pictures because it was just packed on the walls. So trying to give the pictures more room, they've moved some of them. Mm -hmm. But there's pictures everywhere of people who have been healed or people who have been prayed for or whatever. And then there's actually like a hanger where people hang their crutches when they've been healed. So yeah, they'll leave their crutches there. Um, I will say the crutches do not stay there. Um, an orthopedic orthopedic surgeon actually goes there twice a year and he'll see which ones cause he like works near there. So a lot of them are usually from his practice. (laughs) So he will like, yeah, he'll take it back and he'll like give it to people who can't afford the crutches or stuff like that. Yeah. Which actually they are pretty expensive because like when I sprained my ankle, I was even trying to get one of those like scooters. Oh my gosh. Yes. Those are way too expensive. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. So it it does go like to charity in a sense. So that's really cool. Um, so, yeah, so talking a little bit about fact and fiction when it comes to the logistics of this dirt. Yes. <laughs> um, so at this point, the origin stories for the church and the dirt are more legend than truth, even according to the church officials. Like, they kind of side more along the story of the priests coming up with the um, settlers. Okay, bring in the cross. Yeah, bringing yeah. the cross with him and then him buried. That's the story that... Um, a lot of the time when the priests are interviewed, that's kind of the version they stick with. Okay. Um, but also, so it is proven though, that the dirt is not miraculously replenished. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sure it's not. (laughs) You know, um, so the church actually, and I've, I saw two different articles that said two different things. Um, so there was a New York Times article from 2008 that were the 
pastor or priest at the time said that he actually had to buy clean dirt for this. Or it's also possible they may get the dirt from surrounding hillsides and just try to clean it the say, best like, that they do. They didn't go back to where they got it in the first place? Well, no, they built the church where they got oh, it. Oh. So that church was built around that spot. Got it. Because, like... What is clean dirt? What does that mean? I guess just kind of, like, sifting through it, make sure there's no, like, dog poop or... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be horrible. You're all animal remains. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, so they, they try, I guess, I don't know what the process is for cleaning dirt, okay. but I'm guessing they're trying to make it as clean as possible so yeah. there's not, like, dead animals or anything crazy in it. Well, because yeah. I keep picturing how you said people would put it in water and drink it, and that's, yeah. like, I can't get that image out of my head. I have never personally done that. Because that just sounds, like, even getting sand in my mouth for a second freaks me out, so yeah. I can't imagine. Yeah, kudos to those people for their dedication to this. Yeah. <laughs> Is it is it like brown dirt? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this whole time, which I knew you would have said if it was, but I was kind of picturing like Almogordo white sands dirt, which I knew that's not what it was. Oh yeah, no. that's what I was just picturing. That would be interesting. I yeah. Would, but yeah, no, it's just regular brown just dirt. Brown dirt. Yeah. Um. But anyway, so they either buy it or they pull it from the nearby hillsides and somehow cling it. And it's actually, there's a whole bunch of dirt that's stored in a side building <laughs> um, to fill it, refill it as it gets low. Okay. Um, so, and like I said, kind of, I've already mentioned this, but uh, like at the time of that New York Times article in 2008, the, it was Father Roca in charge of the place. And mm-hmm. he did quote, like he did say that he didn't really like how people were more crazed over the dirt than God and the crucifix. Yeah. But also the, so I've mentioned this guy before, um, Benjamin Radford. He did the mysterious New Mexico book that I mentioned, I think in the last episode, mm-hmm. um, this is where I first kind of, he has a chapter all on this. And he did kind of like to point out like, yeah, they're emphasizing the dirt's not, the big thing but they do capitalize on it like yeah they, it's like almost like an idol yeah basically. because the gift shop does sell i know for sure they sell containers mm-hmm. to put the dirt in to take home um at the time when he wrote this book which was in 2014 i think uh he did say that the gift shop was selling the dirt itself i don't know if i remember seeing the dirt in the gift shop what so why would you buy dirt, dirt. you could just scoop Exactly. <laughs> so that's why I was a little confused when I read that in his book. I was huh. like, I don't remember that being a thing, but maybe it was at the time, and yeah. I just don't remember. I mean, that was like 10 years ago, yeah. so maybe. Oh, don't tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> You're so old. I'm getting old. Um, but anyway, so, so yeah. So, uh, but they do say the dirt is blessed by a priest. Um, mm. So... And the Santuario's website says that the dirt, quote-unquote, has no special power in and of itself. And um, there's also a booklet published by the Sons of the Holy Family, who are the caretakers still of the church. Um, And they emphasize that faith should be in God and not the dirt. Yeah. So they try to really, like, really toe that line of, like, sure, come get the healing dirt, but let's focus on God. It's great. It's like, it's almost like a, like a... I can't even think of the word. Like, it's just, like, a something to have because it's related to religion, I guess, but it's not really... 
I can't think of the word. Just keep going. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, so talking about all these healings, there are a couple healings that are mentioned in Benjamin Radford's book. Okay. Uh, definitely his book goes more into detail, and I find his book really interesting. You always hear me rave about this book, even though he may not always come to the same conclusions that I do, because he's definitely way more skeptical than I am. Mm, Yes. (laughs) Um... But I still love to see the way he does his investigations and the way he, like, really looks into everything. It's really interesting to read about. But he goes way into more detail with these healings. I kind of have a summarized version of some of these. Okay. Um, So the first one is uh, Desiree Martinez. Uh, Her miracle healing was actually featured on the 2011 TV show Miracle Detectives. Wow. So when she was 15, she had non-Hodgkin lymphoma, which is a type of cancer, mm-hmm. and it caused over 20 lesions all over her body, among many other issues. Like, I remember it mentioning, like, her bones actually hurt her, like, her joints would hurt. Oh, yeah. Um, but she went on an eighth grade field trip to Chimayo, and she rubbed the dirt on her lesions. And when she returned to Colorado, she did resume her chemo treatment. But she soon showed great improvement and went into remission. And she and her family believe she was healed by the dirt from Chimayo. Uh, There is some skepticism about the healing in Ragford's book, uh, just because the type of cancer she had had a really high cure rate on its own. Yeah. Um, But he did point out that whether it was a miracle or not, the dirt and that act of her doing that gave her and her family a positive mindset, which Mm -hmm. does also help with the healing process. Yes. And in his book, he does explain a lot more about skepticism and all that, like his skepticism, like why he's skeptical about whether or not it's a miracle. Um, But he does seem agnostic on her healing. Like, he's like, it could be, it could not be. I don't know. Yeah, it's almost like, kind of like the placebo effect, kind of, where you just really believe something's going to work and like, whether it was that specific thing or just god specifically or medicine specifically it just helped yeah 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 and so that's kind of a brief overlook of desiree um there's also one a gentleman that he talked about named armando cordoba cordoba uh so this man actually called benjamin rafford himself and he wanted to share his story and allow him to investigate and hopefully prove his miracle healing okay uh, so again, I'm doing a summary of this. If he, and Radford tells his story beautifully in the book, and I feel like he had so much respect for him because he actually sat with this man and got to talk with him and get to know him. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, not too long after he was writing, like he was close to publishing, but he was like double checking on some stuff. Yeah, he did find out that Armando passed away from oh. cancer. And but his wife was very much like, no, please include his story. He so wanted his story Aww, in there. That's so and cute. you know, he really liked you, like yeah, you know. So oh, I feel like Benjamin Radford gave him a lot of respect in this. And um, but anyways, backtracking a bit though. So Armando in 1954, when he was 21 years old, he was 19 days out of the navy. And he was living in his mother's house in Albuquerque, New Mexico, with his wife, Antonia, and their eldest, then a baby, son. Okay. 
So they were getting ready for their baby son's confirmation, which is uh, one of three sacraments to initiate into the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. And Armando decided to warm up the room because it was early spring and it was still chilly at the time. So he put some kerosene on the wood in the fireplace to get it going, but when he lit it, it blew up. Mm. Um, It's likely it was contaminated with gasoline. Apparently this was an issue at the time. Oh, gosh. Uh, So it burned him from the waist up. (gasps) Oh, my goodness. Uh, He ran to their back porch where his mother-in-law threw cold water on him, and then his brother took him to the hospital. First, he went to St. Joseph's, and then they referred him to the Veterans Hospital. <laughs> For a second, I thought you like a vet. Oh, like not veterinarian. Like, what? <laughs> he is oh, a human. He's a vet. Right. He's, yeah, yeah he, he was out of the Navy, yes. <laughs> Vagarin, yeah. yeah. Um, so anyways, uh, his time spent at the hospital was a bit fuzzy, because he was telling this story 50 years later, so his okay. memory a little bit was a little fuzzy. Um, but it, he spent anywhere from a week to a month in the hospital. Yeah. Uh, so despite no one thinking it was a great idea, Armando really wanted to go to Chimayo for Easter. So he finally convinced the doctors to bandage him up. He even joked about how he looked like a mummy. And they gave him the go-ahead. They were like, fine, I don't know if that's a great idea, but if you want to go, you go. So at Chimayo, he had his wife help him take off all his bandages, which she was not big on either. He rubbed the dirt on his burns. And then he put the bandages back on. That sounds like it would hurt. Right? I thought that too. Um, But yeah, so he, and he also said that when he went back to the hospital and they were taking off the bandages, they're like, what is all this crap on your burns? Oh gosh. (laughs) But yeah, so he had all kinds of dirt under his bandages. But when he did return to the doctor, it was the next day, and despite all the dirt that was concerning for them, um, they, he said that his burns looked more like bad sunburns, and he, they actually released him to go home. Oh. Uh, do you know, like, how bad his burns were, though? Or are they, like, first degree, second degree? So that's one of the issues, okay. is that you helped me segue into that, oh. because Rackford really wanted to investigate this. He's yeah. like, this sounds incredible, and you're yeah. here, like, I have your first account, like, this is great. Well, so he told Armando, I need you to get your medical records so that we can find out how bad were your burns. Was this, you know, actually a miracle, or was it kind of, you know, and all this? Your skin just healed yeah it, it's been a day or whatever yeah because yeah. he had already been there anywhere from a week to a month yeah so yeah, yeah so anyway so he was like but i can't get your medical records myself you need to get them so we can see what it was yeah well unfortunately when he called the veterans hospital they had destroyed all of his medical records because they were over 50 years old oh oh huh. yeah is that like the time frame that they do that i don't know I I feel like like your medical records are supposed to be there forever. I know in one place that I've worked in the past, when we had, like, personal information like that, they actually had us, they told us that they hold on to it for, like, 70 years. Hmm. But, so I don't know if the hospital looks 50 years. I just feel like medical records, Right? Like, you even know your your family's medical history because it has to do with you. I know. I I wonder, though, too, because I've heard a lot of rumors about the Veterans Hospital not being the greatest. Oh. So I kind of wonder. And plus, I'm sure a lot of it was, like, actual, like, paper instead of, like, in a computer somewhere, I'm assuming. I don't know. 
Yeah, because I mean, in 1950, it wouldn't have been on a computer. Yeah, but, but you would think that they would transfer everything so you could have your medical records. So with their luck, it might have gotten lost while they were transferring Probably, it or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they didn't want to admit that, so they're like, oh no, after 50 years, we, we destroy just destroy it. Them. <laughs> yeah, I can see, I don't know, I can see either happening. Yeah, <laughs> but So unfortunately, they had been destroyed, so we have no clue what his actual, what his burns, what degree they were. Okay. What exactly they did, anything, it's all gone. Okay. Um, Ragford did try to kind of just, like, look into, like, okay, here's your story. Let me look into, like, fire and when people get burned. Like, how bad do they get burned when something like this happens? Well, plus, like, how he looks now, because uh, any burn victim, like, they're going to have scarring and stuff, too. See, and yeah, and that's the thing, too, is I want to say... Because I don't have it in my notes, but I want to say, like, his scarring wasn't too bad. He had a few scars, but nothing crazy. Okay. Um, there's even a picture of him from his waist up to oh, show, like, what yeah. he looks like now. And I don't remember seeing anything insane. Okay. okay. Um, but when Ragford tried to investigate, like, fires and how that all works, like, went that type of thing. Yeah. You know, he can speculate that he may not have had as bad of burns because it was, like, a type of what's called a flash fire. Oh, yeah. And especially since the mother-in-law, like, poured cold water on him so fast, he thinks that maybe the burns weren't so bad. Yeah, and and also, if they discharged him because it looked like a bad sunburn, like, usually that's not how, if it's, like, really bad burns, that's not how it looks, and you can't rub dirt in it. And not be, like, in horrible pain, you know? I mean, yeah, he didn't mention if it hurt him or not. Like, I don't picture. Yeah, I wouldn't think that would be fun. Yeah. But, so, anyway, so Radford kind of speculates, but he did emphasize that he can't really make a conclusion because he doesn't have all the information of his specific case. Yeah. And he, Armando, he does truly believe, again, that it was a miracle healing. And his family believes that as well. Um, but I will say before ending on Armando's story, he did emphasize that his faith in God worked through the dirt and miraculously healed him, not the dirt itself. Mm -hmm. I also loved this quote that he had because Ragford, uh, recorded the um, deal and he had this quote in there as well. And, um, Armando said, faith, yeah, I have faith, a miracle by all means, but that miracle is because I have faith in God that he would heal me, and if he hadn't healed me, I would still be able to accept his wishes. His wishes, not mine. Unfortunately, he has passed, but, uh, like I said, if you want to read a beautiful version of his story, I would check out Mysterious New Mexico by Benjamin Ragford. But anyway, so some of the conclusions about the dirt. Uh, Ragford concludes that the dirt is pretty normal overall, um, but he did note that the dirt was sent to be tested like by a laboratory mm-hmm. and the dirt is actually high in calcium carbonate, which is part of some stomach remedies. Oh, so he was saying that might be why when people drink it, they feel a little bit better. Yeah. Um, there are also, uh, Oh, and this is what I was mentioning earlier. There are some mystical or new age people who say the healing comes from the energies or vibrations of the earth. And ley lines, which are imaginary lines across Earth that connect mystical places and cosmic centers. Mm -hmm. Um, Ghostbusters. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So some people think it's more like that type of stuff. Um, 
Ragford does go more into faith healings in general and the difficulties in proving them in his book. But so the Durgic self may or may not be normal. Um, I still think that personally, I still think that God can work through it because God has worked through I, objects and things in the past. Yeah. Sure. Um, in our belief. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's the dirt. But I do have a little bit more. That's the dirt on the dirt. <laughs> That's the dirt on the dirt. <laughs> yes. Um, so I did kind of mention earlier the guy who found the crucifix and got this church built and all that. Don Bernardo Abeta. Mm-hmm. He was a penitente. Mm-hmm. So yes. these are really interesting people. Okay. Tell me. <laughs> Tell me about them. Um... So, for short, a lot of people call them Los Hermanos Penitentes, which is the, the Penitent Brotherhood. Mm-hmm. Their full name, this is a fun one, there's two full names for uh-huh. them. <laughs> one, the longest full name is Los Hermanos de la Fraternidad Piadosa de Nuestro Padre Jesús Nazareno. Which in English <laughs> is the brothers of the pious fraternity of our father Jesus of Nazareth. Oh. They are also known as La Cofradía de Nuestro Padre Jesús Nazareno, which is the fraternity of our father Jesus of Nazareth. I didn't know Jesus had a frat house. Apparently he does. <laughs> and they are very interesting folks. Um, so the penitentes, they had had and kind of have a strong influence on culture and beliefs of small communities in the upper Rio Grande Valley, which is the northern New Mexico and southern Colorado. The penitentes themselves started 800 years ago in Spain and Italy. Uh, They kind of branched off of the Catholic Church, but they are not supported by the Vatican. Why are they nutty? So these people, and I I think they still do this today. I don't know for sure, though. But these people would practice self-flagellation and other physical torment as penance for their sins. Like that guy from um, the Vinci God? Paul, whatever. Yes, yes. I have not seen the movie, and I read the book a super long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, so... uh, during Holy Week, they would often publicly whip themselves with what's called disciplinas, which were whips made of yucca stalks. Um, they would also bind cacti to their bare backs or mm. bind themselves to heavy wooden crosses and walk through the stations of the cross. Like, oh they gosh. would basically reenact the stations of the cross. Yeah. Um, some of their philosophy may have resulted from the Third Order of St. Francis of Assisi, uh, a quote that I found about that, because I don't know much about that, uh, says the Third Order consists of religious and laymen and women who try to emulate St. Francis's spirit by performing works of teaching, charity, and social service. Which, that makes more sense as we get into it a bit more. Because a lot of people focus on, like, their self-harming. Yeah, which um, is pretty crazy. Because, yeah, it's, yeah. it's shocking. Yeah. It's, you know, it's surprising. Yeah. Uh, but they're also, they're actually, and I keep saying interesting because... Yeah, that part kind of freaks people out, including myself. Yes. <laughs> um, but they're not necessarily bad people. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're just harming themselves. But. Yeah. So, um, but they have been in New Mexico for over 400 years. 
Uh, and they, uh, let's see, so in Holy Week services, that which include uh, lit- liturgical, which is public worship rites, Spanish pious customs, and often they are the ones that lead the services. Oh. So they'll, like, do the preaching and stuff. Yeah. Um, this whole, These Holy Week services are attended by parish churches of Santa Fe, Santa Cruz de la Cañada, and Albuquerque. Uh, and it continued in New Mexico after Bishop John John Baptiste Lamy and some French clergy were appointed in the area. And one article said this, one article said they weren't, but they may have been appointed here in New Mexico to try to stop the penitentes. Oh. Um, The penitentes were respected and supported by the local communities. And... So, kind of going more about, like, the shocking part of them. So, the first story or description of them was written down by American merchant traveler Josiah Gregg in 1831. He witnessed a Good Friday Penitente procession and folk tableau in Tome Plaza, which involved flagellation. Uh, He published a quote-unquote scandalous account in his book about the Santa Fe Trail, Commerce of the Prairies. And when They do it publicly? Yes. During oh. Holy Week, they do public, um, like, as I mentioned before, where they whip themselves yeah. with the yucca stalks yeah. and uh, tie the cacti to themselves and do the Station of the Cross. That's all publicly. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. Because it's almost like you're doing it to punish yourself or whatever, but you're also, like, letting other people watch, which is, like, I wonder... Yeah, and I will say from what I read and what I understand, which if anybody knows more, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I was reading, it seems like they do have stuff that they do privately. It's more like Holy Week is when they go crazy. Yeah. You know? Yeah, interesting. And it's interesting, like, the people who would want to watch that. Yeah. And I think part two, because, like, the Holy Week, a lot of the emphasis at that time is on Jesus' suffering, so I think they're trying to, like emulate that in their own way like you know like yeah because in their eyes from what i understand is they're trying to pay respect to jesus by suffering in similar ways to what he did yeah because that's like their way of showing like respect and also like uh penance so like they you know yeah even though like i don't quite believe the same but that's what they believe (laughs) just interesting um but, yeah, so, yes, yeah, so they did it publicly. And then when the railroad came to New Mexico in 1878, it allowed stories of the penitentes to spread to other parts of the U.S. and, quote-unquote, alarmed Protestant readers. On Good Friday of 1883, tourists saw a penitente procession in Los Griegos near Albuquerque, and the Los Angeles Herald published an article to push for people in the church to stop their practices. Bless you. Um, many people became fascinated but not in a great way to the point of either harassing penitentes to see their rituals or making up stories and images that exaggerated what they did Mm -hmm. see that's like what i was talking about like Mm -hmm. people who watch it it's almost like uh i don't know like the people who used to watch beheadings and stuff and hangings yeah Yeah. human beings have like this this thing about morbid like you know morbid curiosity yeah there is a podcast called that which is very interesting but yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah, because you're like 
interested in seeing it happen to somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, like I said, it's just this morbid curiosity that we have. That it's like, we want to see it, but we don't. And it's like, ah, but... And then they're wanting to make it, like, sound worse than it is, too. Yeah, in like, the 1800s, people were notorious for doing that with yeah. anything. Like, they were like, oh, it has to be bigger so that everybody wants to know about it. Yeah. And, um, but because it led to people starting to harass them, uh, even on some events, there's been times in the past, in the 1800s, where some hermanos had to even use slingshots and rifles to keep people away because they would, like, really... Slingshots and rifles? That's yeah. jump. Either you're going to get hit by a rock or you're dying. I would think, and this is just me trying to make an inference based on what I've read, I doubt they actually shot anybody. I feel like it was, it was more like, like... To deter people. Yeah, like, yeah. Um, but in some accounts that come from the 1800s may be accurate because they did do some crazy stuff, mm-hmm. but it's hard to tell which are true and which yeah. are not. Yeah. Um, but here's the part where, where they got a lot of the respect and support from local communities is because they helped maintain the Hispanic religious traditions and charity for communities. Like they did charity work. Okay. Um, and they helped really preserve Hispanic culture because um they had to serve as priests when the catholic church removed most priests from new mexico churches um after the 1821 mexican independence from spain because most of the priests in the churches at that time were mexican yeah so they were like well no you're not under spain anymore so get out of the churches Mm -hmm. and then but then they left the churches without priests for a while so the penitentes stepped in and they were like hey we know this stuff we can be the priests until they figure their stuff out yeah um so switching my pages now They're attributed with maintaining Hispanic traditions and original culture despite some efforts to wipe it out, even when they were pushed to be a secret society. And that's something that I talk about a bit in a second. Give me two seconds. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, so when Hispanics faced pressure or discrimination, etc., the penitentes would provide legal, food, or any support they could. Um, They helped Hispanics keep their land if some, like... Them white settlers tried to come in and did take they go to law school? I think they might have if they yeah. were providing legal support. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, they did give the church money when someone needed them for funeral expenses, so they would help with. Did funeral. they have like regular jobs too, or like how? Where did they get money from? You know, that's a really good question. I don't know if they. I would think they had regular jobs but i also wonder because they did there was mention that they were a pretty open church for a while Mm -hmm. so i don't know if people like went and like tithed like they do in regular you know yeah other churches so it might have been the tithing you know because they were a lot more open previously Mm -hmm. um or maybe they had regular jobs i really don't know they didn't really mention all that um, but they did also partner with Sociedad Protección Mutua de Trabajadores Unidos, which was a Hispanic workers union, to provide protection and aid. Okay. So they tried to get rights for Hispanic workers as well. So they were really, like, 
doing the thing yeah. like you know so were they like regular priests like where they wouldn't get married or have children were they like that too you know you have some really good questions that <laughs> I'm just curious I did I'm not like, read <laughs> I, would, of- I wonder because it sounds like they follow a lot of Catholic you know beliefs and such it's just mm-hmm. that they kind of like diverted with this penance yeah practice yeah um you know, now I want to ask my grandma because I was telling her about this and she was saying she knew somebody growing up that was um, a penitente. So yeah. I was like, now I'm on yeah. have some questions for her, see if she knows. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so now going into, they were forced to become a more, like, a <clears throat> secret-ish society when the Mexican-American War ended in 1848 and the U.S. government and the Catholic Church teamed to, quote-unquote, Americanize Catholicism in the southwestern United States. Mm. Um, this was... So they were pushing, trying to push, like, a lot of that out and make it more Americanized because they wanted to destroy the allegiances that a lot of people in the area still had to Mexico and Spain. Um, but it was also just usual America, just, we don't like diversity, so. (laughs) Trying to whitewash everything. Yeah. Um, so their society, the, uh, Benitente society and their practices were actually banned by the Catholic Church at that time. And they had to practice in what was called moradas, which were small windowless buildings of adobe or stone that was away from the churches. And the cra- also the craze of people being obsessed with their rituals, as I was mentioning earlier, that may have also caused them to be a bit more private and secretive. Okay, like, yeah. That might, yeah. They say that that might have also pushed them to kind of be like, eh. Yeah. Because um, people were probably less interested in, like, the meaning behind it and then just more interested in the actual acts. Yeah. Yeah. These people yeah. being all insane and hitting themselves what's yes. going on. Yeah. You know? Yeah, for sure. Um, they did reconcile with the Catholic Church in the mid-1900s, and they still have a strong presence in the Chimayo uh, area, and they participate in many formal church ceremonies. For instance, during Holy Week, they still lead the processions, and they're just still around. They they persisted. (laughs) Interesting. Is there, like, a big group of them, or...? Just a few people? It sounds like it's a decent-sized group still. Okay. Because, um, I mean, this was a lot of this information was even featured on uh, Santuario de Chimayo's website. Oh, okay, yeah. So they still have, like, I guess, like, this connection with them. So. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so that is El Santuario de Chimayo, some miracle holy dirt, and some <laughs> really interesting Catholics. <laughs> yes. That's a great story. I... I don't even think I've ever heard of it, to be honest. I know you say you've invited me, but I don't even remember that. <laughs> so, you know. Well, I'm re-inviting you now, and it's recorded. Okay. <laughs> we have uh, proof, receipts. Yeah. All right. All right, let's move on. Okay, so um, now it's my turn. And I'm actually going to talk about something you might know most of what I'm going to talk about, but I started, I think I mentioned to you, I was trying to, I try to look at several stories at once to see which one I get more information of, Uh because I just like 
sometimes I'll research something. I'm like, wow, I got two pages of notes. What am I supposed to do with that? (laughs) And it's not enough. But um, I got a pretty decent amount of information on this. And there's tons out there, but I put stuff in there that I've specifically never heard of and that I felt like was new information. Hopefully you haven't heard of all this stuff too, because I'm going to talk about some crazy slash fun facts about Disneyland. Yay! I'm going there this year. Oh, you are? Yeah. (laughs) That'll be fun. Well, you can think about these things then while you're there. All right. So I'm just kind of listed them as little bullet points of fun facts that I have. And then I kind of, we could just kind of discuss them as we go. But the first fact that I have is when Disneyland first opened on July 17th in 1955, it contained 18 attractions. Now it's over 50 and it only cost $1 for an admission into Disneyland. I knew the $1. That's crazy. <laughs> Cause now it's like minimum like 125 or something like that per yeah. person. Um, uh, 125, not a dollar and 25 No, yeah, cents. yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah, right. It would be packed all the time. Um, it only took one year to build the park before it opened. And then California Adventure didn't open until 45 years after Disneyland was opened. Yeah, because it opened when I was a little kid. I was, I went when it had just Yeah, cause, so that was, uh, <laughs> oh, let, me, let me do the math in 1960. No, not 1960. I am not that old, man. 1990, I think, is the math. 90, 2000. It was 2000. It must have been 2000. 2000, 2000 because yes. I wasn't born until 93, so... Yes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then in the meantime, it served the land just served as a parking lot for Disneyland. Uh-huh. All right. So this is one of my favorite facts, which I feel like I've heard about this before, but I kind of did a little deeper dive into it. But um, there are hundreds of feral cats that live at Disneyland. Yes. It yes. is like my favorite thing. We always play find the cat now when we go since I yeah. found that out. <laughs> yeah. And I like... Let me just talk about it because it makes me so happy because I love cats. Yeah. <laughs> so um, when they these cats were for, first seen in the park the day it opened, like they had been there basically from the beginning. Um, when the Sleeping Beauty Castle first opened, Walt wanted to create an int- attraction inside of the castle, like a walkthrough like it is now. And um, when they went in there, they discovered that a colony of feral cats had already made it their home and so he was kind of like well we can't have cats in the park and because these cats also had fleas and they don't want fleas in the park but then disney was like or i'll just call him walt so we don't get confused but walt was also concerned about like a huge uproar when they find out that he just like dehomed all these cats so he, he instead decided to adopt all of them and made them official cast members of the park Yes. <laughs> they also helped um, the park keep control of their uh, little Mickeys and Minis that they had problems with a <laughs> lot, too. Um, the feral cats are also uh, scared of humans a lot of the time. So most of the time, I mean, when you're there, I've seen like a cat or two here and there when I've been there. But usually they're hiding because yeah, there's to 200 is the estimate of how many cats are there. 200 cats. Um, so they were like, it's great because they're feral, so they'll stay hidden during the day, and then they'll come out at night and hunt for these little Mickeys and Minis, yeah. is what the cast members call them. <laughs> um, we're hunting Mickey and Minnie. <laughs> yeah, isn't that cute? <laughs> um, 
these cats are actually pretty spoiled too. They have an in-house vet, so every cat is neutered or spayed and is up to date on their vaccinations. Um, It's hard for them to keep track though, so because there's hundreds of cats there that sometimes they'll get like a litter will be born or whatever happens Um, or sometimes even the cats will just start getting used to the humans and they'll start coming out more and so what Walt did is he kind of has this like program where if that happens he will offer cast members to adopt these cats and take them home. Okay. Um, There are also several feeding stations around the park for them as well. Um, Also, they talked about how there's this one cat in particular. His name is Francisco. And (laughs) there's this hashtag on Instagram, um, hashtag Francisco Friday. And he can be seen mostly, they talk about, a lot of these cats actually have their, like, spots where they get can be seen, but he gets seen a lot in, like, the Critter Country area. Okay. And he is a uh, tortoise shell cat, um, which is controversial. They kind of talked about it because usually those cats are female. So they're like, is he male? Is he female? And then, like, Disney's like, it's not about the gender. It's about the fact that he's a cat. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you can actually look on Instagram. I think their page is called Cats of Disneyland. And he's, like, the number one. There's there's a few. I didn't write them down, but he's the most popular one. There's, like, a couple others that are big, too, um, that people see a lot because they just come out a lot. Yeah, so, um, but Disney also makes, or, yeah, Disney also makes it a big thing. You're not supposed to touch the cats or approach them or anything because they're feral cats, which I know personally I took into feral kittens recently and it took them a good, like, maybe week or two to even let me pick them up. And it was a battle. Like, my friend Megan that helped me catch them got attacked like horribly by the gray cat that I named Dracula and now he's literally the sweetest you pick him up he won't even claw you anymore so cute kittens can sometimes be uh how do you say like domesticated I guess yeah domesticated it's when they're full-grown cats that usually they're like yeah yeah just trap was it TNR trap nuger release yes which um I learned too that you can tell if a cat is uh TNR, um, if they are their ear, ears are clipped. Yeah. Which I didn't know that. I was like, that's interesting that they're just like, okay, now go back into the world, cat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I follow um, Kitten Lady mm-hmm. on Instagram and Facebook, and she talks a lot about that. That's her whole uh, nonprofit organization. It's all about that. Which is like, then you can tell the difference between a feral cat and like a stray cat. It's yeah. a different thing because stray cats are cats who like, have lived inside and like have had interaction with humans and you can pet them and stuff which is great because now these two little kitties are pretty much like domesticated now and i'm trying to give one of them a home so (laughs) if you're looking for a cat just kidding this will probably come out way after i already done that yeah (laughs) so this next fact is really cool i never heard of this but disneyland is where doritos were invented Really? Yeah. Um, During the early 1960s, Frito-Lay had a restaurant inside of the park called Casa de Fritos, which is something else now. But one day, an employee realized, he's like, oh, we're just, like, throwing out a lot of stale tortillas. He's like, we should, like, fry them and resell them as chips. And so 
they did, and they became super popular. Like, people loved getting these <laughs> stale tortilla chips. <laughs> but um, one day, Frito-Lay was like, these are so popular, like, let's let's take this idea. And they debuted Doritos in 1966, and it was the first highly marketed tortilla chip. And they came from stale oh. tortillas, yes. <laughs> did it say, like, how they got to putting, like, the powder on them? It did, which it's not a lot of Disney stuff, so I didn't really... write the write it down but they did they talked about um like members of frito-lay were like well what if we had this dust or what if we had this dust on it and it like came up with the nacho flavor and the ranch flavor but i didn't like deep dive into that part because it didn't have to do with disney yes no no okay and then another fact is uh, four babies have been born in disneyland (laughs) yes so which like, imagine you're, first of all, I can't, can't imagine going to Disneyland when I'm that pregnant, yeah, like, uh-huh. on the verge of giving birth, but some women have done it, four, so far. <laughs> I was a literal couch potato by that time. Yeah, like, I, I even not... if I was, like, five, six months pregnant, I would be like, nope, my feet are going to swell at the end of the day, I can't. No. And what's interesting is, um... Because, like, I don't know if maybe it's been a recent change, but I know when I was pregnant, like, they told me I shouldn't travel in the last trimester. Like, they were telling me you're not supposed to really travel in the last trimester. I guess these ladies just didn't pay attention. Yeah, or maybe (laughs) some of them were just local. Oh, yeah, Yeah, true. Because, okay, so the first um, baby that was born was born on July 4th, 1979. Rosa and Elias Salcido went to the park to celebrate 4th of July. Um, Even though she was close to her due date, she still decided to come and enjoy the park as best as possible, which, I mean, it's different than other parks because a lot of the rides are just sitting there. Yeah, Yeah. so it's, yeah. Um, They were in the submarine voyage in Tomorrowland when she started to feel sharp pains. And then um, when she got off the ride, she kind of sat on this bench and her husband ran to go find the paramedics. Um, paramedics came to her where she was resting in the center of the park on main street. Um, due to her, how the condition she was already in, like they were like, this baby's coming. And mm-hmm. she gave birth to baby Teresa. She was born right there on main street. <laughs> like imagine, <laughs> imagine like that's one of the most intimate, hardcore things you will go through in your entire life. And like giving birth into one of the busiest places on earth too. Like, right there. Here's the baby. (laughs) Um, Not long after she was born, her parents parents brought her back when she was an infant still, and they held a ceremony for her in front of the Sleeping Beauty castle, and she was given a certificate that said Disneyland birth certificate number one. Aww. Yes. And there was, like, this crazy... um, phenomenon that kind of happened after that where this rumor went around that since she was born there she got to have disney passes for free for her whole life but that was that didn't happen but i don't know if this caused more pregnant women to be coming to disneyland because like i want my baby to be born in disneyland who knows i don't know some people are crazy some people are crazy Um, so in 1984, a woman gave birth to her baby there at a first aid station when she went into labor while waiting her, for her family to ride Space Mountain. Oh. Like, imagine you're, like, waiting for your family and you're like, ah, this baby's coming now. <laughs> uh, and then in 1997, this is actually a really sad one. Oh. In 1997, a newborn baby was found in one of the restrooms near Space Mountain. 
Dr. Kenneth Goodman was visiting the park from Cleveland, Ohio, and he heard cries and found the baby girl in the bathroom, who appeared to be only minutes old. She was taken to a nearby hospital to be treated for low body temperature, and sadly, her mother was never identified, so she was put into the foster system and eventually adopted. So, like, like, what? It's so sad. Like, I know that kind of stuff happens all the time, but, like, imagine going to Disneyland and you're pregnant, I'm assuming with a baby you don't even want, and then you give birth in a bathroom and then just leave it there. And we... And the crazy thing is either this mother, I don't like calling her a mother, but this woman was either there by herself and did this, or she had people with her that must have known she was pregnant and just went along with it. it was like a, I didn't know I was pregnant thing. Oh, right. That's true. That does That's like, I kind of thought, because how could you go with somebody? My theory is that she was probably either alone or she didn't know she was pregnant because how could you go with that? Well, I don't know. Cause sometimes there's crazy couples and families out there who I just don't know. I don't know. I guess we'll never know unless yeah. one day this little girl grows up and she wants to know who her mom is and then finds and out and gets the story. Yeah. yeah. Hey mom in 97, I was born. Ugh, it's crazy. And then in 2002, A woman went into labor outside the gates and she was taken backstage to give birth. And then um, the last one was in 2012. A woman went into labor in the parking lot and then gave birth right outside of the entrance. Oh my God. Yeah. So like if you're about to go into labor, probably don't go to Disneyland. Yeah. Probably go to a hospital or stay at home. Those are my suggestions. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. I can't imagine. (laughs) Yeah. I can't either because, like I said, like, even just going there just while I'm pregnant, but also, like, being on the verge of giving birth? No. Yeah. Absolutely not. No, no. Crazy. It's so hard for me to imagine because, like, like I didn't go into labor naturally. I was induced. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know? So yeah. I just, like, checked into the hospital and then they induced me. Of course, the whole thing wasn't chill. It was pretty chill after I got an epidural. Yes. Which that I fully everything. endorsed. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, um, what should we call it? Like, but it's still, like, I just, I don't know. I just cannot imagine, like, going into labor. No. In the middle of a theme park. No, and usually, too, it's, I mean, it's California, so usually it's pretty hot out, and there's a bunch of people around. I mean, granted, they do keep Disneyland super, super clean, so I guess that's the good thing, but still, it's like, oh my gosh, with, like, uh, who knows millions of people around you you know like oh yeah it's too much too much yeah um all right so then my next fun fact is that several stars got their start at disneyland just working there as cast members in the early 1980s kevin costner was a struggling actor and he worked at disneyland as a skipper on the jungle cruise ride Imagine oh Kevin Costner. And I always think when I take that ride too, because I always laugh so hard because they're so funny. I'm like, these people should be like actual actors. Sometimes that does happen. Um, he actually uh, met his first wife there too. I think she was playing Snow White um, as a cast member. Okay. And then he said he even ran into Walt Disney himself one time while working there. Which would be amazing. That would be so awesome. Like just walking down and then there's Walt. Uh, Robin Williams worked there in the 1960s. He worked as a mime on Main Street. 
making guests laugh with his physical humor, and he spoke about his time here a lot and said it definitely helped him shape his comedic career. Oh. Robin Williams. Crazy. He just, like, stayed connected with Disney. Like, Yeah. <laughs> oh, he's like, hey, like, now I'm playing the genie, and I used to work here as a mime, not talking at all. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Steve Martin worked at Disneyland starting when it first opened, like, right the first year it opened he first sold guidebooks and twirled lassos in frontierland oh then he started working in merlin's magic shop in fantasyland where he worked there for three years he would demonstrate um the magic tricks to guests and sold jokes to them as well oh and then uh there were actually quite a bit celebrities that i saw work there like maybe 10 or 15 but i'm only giving like the the biggest names to me um the last one is michelle pfeiffer worked at disneyland in um as alice in wonderland in the electric parade um this experience she said inspired her to pursue a career in acting and then she got her first breakout role in scarface i didn't know she was in scarface oh I thought that was cool because, like, yeah, those, and those are some pretty big names. And the fact that Steve Martin too was there for three years—that's a long time. He was like talking about he learned every single nook and cranny of that shop he worked in, Merlin's Magic Shop. And that's the you know, it's always so interesting, like to like remember that celebrities are regular humans too. Yes, like yeah. they had regular jobs mm-hmm. at some point. Mm-hmm. And- exactly, <laughs> you know? it is, and like they're always like, well, if you were in. Disneyland in the 80s, Kevin Costner could have been your Jungle Cruise. I mean, granted, Disney still isn't quite a regular job, but it's more regular than being a celebrity. Oh, yeah. When I lived in uh, California, I even thought, I was like, what if I got a job at Disneyland? Wouldn't that be cool? My mom's like, that's a long drive, Chelsea. (laughs) Sorry, mom. Everything's a long drive out here, but whatever. Uh, okay, so my next fun fact is there, um, there's a small basketball court inside of the Matterhorn. Um, it only contains one hoop and court markings, but it's only for the use of employees, which I'm like, that's really interesting. Like, they're like, hey, you guys want a basketball court inside of the Matterhorn to play? Yeah, I, I have read that one. I didn't know about I didn't, that one. I didn't know about that one, but that's <laughs> interesting because I... My other podcast that I used to do with my other friend, um, I actually talked about um, amusement park accidents, uh-huh. and that was, like, where two of the deaths occurred was in the Matterhorn, too. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. The Matterhorn's got interesting history going on. Um, then uh, Thurl Ravenscroft, the voice of Tony the Tiger for Frosted Flakes, and he's the one who sang the original You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch. He is the voice for several of the attractions there, including the Mark Twain Riverboat and the Monorail and It's a Small World and Haunted Mansion. That would explain why that voice has always been so familiar to me. Yeah, I always think of like, uh, what is it? Welcome, foolish mortals. Yeah. (laughs) And it's the same as uh, Tony the Tiger. Cool. Good to know. Yeah. Okay. And then this last one went by really fast but it's a lot but it's about the pirates of the caribbean ride i saved it for last because it's my favorite that's my mom's favorite i love well what's yours a haunted mansion oh yeah that's a good one (laughs) okay so the pirates of the caribbean ride was the last park attraction that walt was able to design and work on himself 
Um, however, he wasn't able to be there for the opening and see the guests ride it because it opened on March 18th, 1963, just three months after he had passed. Before the boats were created, Imagineers rigged up a chair attached to a dolly and took him through the ride. Oh my gosh! <laughs> like, here, you can experience it. Which is cool that they did that because then he passed before it even opened, so he got to experience it. Yeah. Um, originally, the concept was for the pirates to be a walkthrough wax museum type of experience. Um, it was going to be an experience where guests could get up close to each figure and learn about the history of pirates, and it would have, like, the most famous pirates there. However, after the success of the design of It's a Small World boat ride um, in 1964 when it was debuted at the New York World's Fair, he came up with a uh, similar design for the Pirates ride, which, thank God, because the Pirates ride is just awesome. I love it so oh, much. Oh, yeah. Um, where did I... And instead of wax figures, they design auto audio animatronic characters for the ride. Um, the Blue Bayou Restaurant opened the same day as the ride did. The concept is that you are supposed to feel as though you're in a backyard diner party at a plantation in the bayou with glimmering firefly- fireflies and an amazing atmosphere. Originally, the restaurant was going to be a more type of like dinner theater experience where you would have pirates serving you and entertaining you as um, you ate. But after the first dinner rehearsal, Walt changed his mind. Guess it didn't go well. And he was like, I'd rather the main attraction just be the food and the atmosphere itself, which is nice too. Cause like when you get on the ride, you could see them, which I'm so jealous. I've always wanted to eat there my whole life. Yeah, I've never been able to eat there. I think we had a chance, but at the time, me and my brother were so picky. Oh, that we how like, dare you? <laughs> I've like, been like, too bad! My grandparents were like, yeah, no, we're not gonna sit there just for you to not eat anything. Like... Uh. <laughs> I would have, I would, I've always wanted to eat there because every time I get on the boat and I like look at them, I'm like so jealous, but it's like such a serene atmosphere as you're first going in until you reach the little school that's like, you know, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Um, Let's see. When the ride first opened in 1967, I'm sure you've heard of this because it's pretty common. Um, All of the skeletons featured in the ride were real. And they were donated um, by the UCLA Medical Center. Eventually, they were replaced with fake skeletons, and the real ones were returned to the countries they belonged to, because I guess they came from all over the world. Oh, shoot. Yeah, (laughs) which I didn't know that. Um, And only one real one still remains, which is the one that's on the headboard of the bed scene. Yes. That makes the cross bones. Um, When the ride first opened, um, also... Which I noticed, actually, when I went to Disneyland, I guess after the pandemic happened, I kind of started to notice that they changed a lot of stuff because of a lot of the, like, Me Too movements and the, like, feminist movements. Oh, yes. I did see some of that. Yeah. Because when it first opened, it featured pirates chasing giggling women around. And then they changed that so that now the women are chasing the pirates around. And then they also changed the wench auction, um, which you could take a wench for a bride, to auction just surrender ye loot. Yeah. And they recast, which is so funny that they call it that, but they recast those brides for auction as pi- female pirates, basically. Yeah, because I remember the red-haired one-ish. Now she's, like, yes. reading the things. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, 
Um, and then also after the success of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, Jack Sparrow was added in several scenes. Yes. And this, so when my sister came to visit, another story about her, sorry, Jeff. When she came to visit, we went, we were in Disneyland and we were like, oh, we were about to get in line for Pirates of the Caribbean. I don't think she had ever been on it or maybe she had when she was younger, but the line was super long and she was pregnant. So she's like, I don't want to wait in that line. She's like, we'll just go to go tomorrow because we had like a three day pass or something like that. Yeah. I was like, oh, okay, I guess let's like not go on the pets, right, but okay. And then the next day, we didn't go to Disneyland. We went to California Adventure. And then I found out, <laughs> like, a couple of, like, a week or so later, that the day that we didn't go on the Pirates ride, Johnny Depp himself was there, dressed oh. as Jack Sparrow, <laughs> like, talking to guests and stuff. I was so upset. I was like, I told you I should have gone on the Pirates ride. And she was like, Sorry. <laughs> and I was so jealous, so I just had to throw that in there. Yeah. But yes, that is what I have for fun facts about Disney. Awesome. Yes. So I will be bugging my family when we go later <laughs> this year. Yeah, tell them about, try to find Francisco the cat. I'll show you a picture of him later, but he's oh, will be so following cute. That profile. Yes, yes. You have to <laughs> try to find him and get a picture for me. But all right, guys, thank you so much for joining us this week. Yes, thank you, thank you. And, um, well, this will be established by the time we start releasing all of our episodes, but yes. it was just established at the time of this recording. <laughs> um, we now have social media, and we have an email. So the email is desertsirenspodcast at gmail.com. Yes, and email us, like, comments, suggestions. Like, I would love if you guys have suggestions for stories to tell, because sometimes I can't. Choose one. Oh, yes. yes. 100%. And we will accept constructive feedback that we can actually work with. Yes. <laughs> Don't email me something mean because I'll cry. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we will also have an Instagram that is Desert Sirens Podcast. And we have a Facebook that is just Desert Sirens. Yes. Um, so follow, like, share, comment, post. All, all those things. <laughs> all so. of it. We look forward to talking to you again soon, and hopefully you enjoyed this. Yes, and have a good whatever day, time, week, month, year this is that you're listening to this. <laughs> yes. All right, bye, guys.